I'm Dennis Tuberg, and you're listening to Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio. Glad you decided to tune in today. Hey, joining me today on the program in segments two and three is a very timely guest, Mr. John Williams. Uh, John is an economist, and uh, he has the web sh- website Shadow Stats. Shadow Stats is a website that tracks economic data the way the government used to track it. John has some terrific uh, perspective given what's going on uh, in the economy as a result of the coronavirus pandemic and uh, look forward to providing you with John's perspective. You know, my goal today on the program is to help you make sense of the chaos all around. Now, Given that we are in uncharted financial territory and given that financial and economic conditions are rapidly changing, I'm providing you with my perspective based on current conditions. I spoke to Mr. John Williams this past week on Friday. I am recording this program on Friday uh, at about 3.20 in the afternoon. I normally don't give you that perspective, but given how fast things are changing, and given how fluid the situation is, uh, I wanted to give you that perspective. Now, we are also providing you with some additional resources. In addition to our free newsletter that we distribute every week via email, uh, it's called Portfolio Watch, uh, which you can go subscribe to by visiting retirementlifestyleadvocates.com and letting us know your name and email address. We will email you that publication every Monday at 5. We also have coming up this Tuesday a special educational webinar. It is free due to technology limitations. uh, We may have to cut off registrations once we reach the capacity of our technology limitations. If you would like to register to attend that Tuesday webinar at 11, where we'll share with you additional perspectives as to what's going on in the economy, what should you be thinking about now in your IRA and 401k, and as far as tax planning goes, there will be time for questions as well. This will be an educational webinar only. There will not be a presentation for financial products. You can go to yourportfoliowatchlive.com to register. Again, the website is yourportfoliowatchlive.com, and uh, just register, and uh, you will get a link, and you'll be able to attend that free webinar this Tuesday, March 31 at 11. Now, I believe the coronavirus is the black swan event that triggered, triggered multiple market chain reactions that I will discuss in detail on today's program. Now, I'm not going to comment on the medical issues surrounding the virus because I am certainly not qualified to talk about those issues. I don't want to talk about the political response to the virus. Um, I just want to wish you all health and safety moving forward. Now, that said, I will restrict my commentary on today's program to financial matters and how the current events that we're currently experiencing might affect your finances moving ahead. And I want to begin with the topic of market corrections and market crashes. 
Now, historically speaking, when you go back and study market corrections and market crashes, they are typically triggered by an unexpected black swan event. So from that perspective, this correction is like most of the others experienced by markets over the years. Now, certainly a medical event like the one we are presently experiencing is impossible to forecast. However, I've been talking for a long time about stock market valuations, and I've been predicting a major correction. Now, that anticipated correction, at least in stocks, seems to have begun. Now, while this past week was certainly a lot better for stocks, the decline in stocks the month prior has been historic. Last week, I talked about the fact that the decline in stocks from really mid-late February to mid-late March was steeper than the decline that was experienced in 1929 or steeper or and steeper, I should say, than the flash crash of stocks back in 1987. Now, despite the recent massive decline in stock prices, it's my view that stock valuations remain high. Now, to prove my point, as crazy as that may sound on the surface, let me go back and use Warren Buffett's favorite stock market valuation tool to gauge stock prices. Now, that stock valuation tool is the total market capitalization to gross domestic product ratio. That may sound like gobbledygook to many listeners, but it's the total market capitalization to total gross domestic product ratio. Now, assuming you know, you know nothing about either of those terms, I will explain. Market capitalization is the total value of stocks. To calculate the market capitalization of a publicly traded company, you simply take the total number of outstanding shares of a company's stock, and you multiply that by the price per share. Total number of shares times the selling price per share. When you do that, you come up with a total market capitalization for that particular company. When you do that for every publicly traded company, you arrive at the total market capitalization of the market measured in U.S. dollars. So that's the first piece in using Warren Buffett's favorite stock valuation tool. You need to know what total market capitalization is, and essentially that's just the value of all stocks. Now, gross domestic product is the economic output of the United States measured in U.S. dollars. If you were to technically define gross domestic product or GDP, you would probably say it's the total monetary value of all the finished goods and services produced within a country's borders in a specific period of time. Total monetary value of all the finished goods and services produced within a country's borders in a specific time period. So the Buffett indicator, this total market capitalization to gross domestic product ratio, simply takes total market capitalization and makes it the numerator of the fraction, and gross domestic product, and makes it the denominator of the fraction. Now, when you look at how this particular indicator has moved historically, it's interesting to note how it has been pretty accurate in predicting market tops and market bottoms. 
Now, the interesting thing to note, since I can't really show you a chart on the radio, but I will show you the chart if you'd like to attend our free informational webinar that will be held this Tuesday, March 31, and that will be held at 11 a.m. You can register for the free webinar by visiting yourportfoliowatchlive.com, yourportfoliowatchlive.com, and we will talk about this, and I'll show you the chart on the webinar. Now, interestingly, when you, when you do look at the chart, and you'll see it if you decide to attend the webinar, you see that after the recent collapse in stocks, valuations using this indicator that I just explained to you in detail are now back to where the stock market decline of 2007 to 2009 began. Let me say that again. Using this metric, using this valuation tool, the recent collapse in stocks finds that stocks are now back to where the stock decline started in 2007. That shows you how crazy high these valuations were. Now, the economic constraints currently in place due to the coronavirus will probably mean that we have a bigger hit to gross domestic product moving ahead than the biggest hit we had during the financial crisis. So stocks could actually maybe go lower than they did from this point in 2007 to 2009 when they dropped 55%. So what should you do? Well, you should educate yourself. You should get information as I said, we are doing a free informational webinar Tuesday, March 31 at 11 a.m. To register, go to yourportfoliowatchlive.com, and there'll be a link for you to sign up. I'll be back with John Williams. I am Dennis Tuberg, and you are listening to Retirement Lifestyles Advocates Radio. I am talking today with Mr. John Williams, who is an economist. He's a returning guest. This is a second time on the program. His website is shadowstats.com. I would encourage everybody to check it out. I'm a big fan of John's work. And, uh, John, welcome to the program. Dennis, uh, thank you for having me. So, John, uh, I don't know where to start with all the craziness and chaos going on. Uh, just give me your take uh, in light of the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, where does the U.S. economy stand right now? Well, right now, uh, we're, we're in serious uh, trouble, although you haven't seen it yet in the, uh, in, in the headline reporting. That'll be coming in the next uh, uh, week or two. I'll contend that the economy to start with was not as strong as advertised coming into the uh, pandemic crisis. Uh, if you go back a couple of months, headlines were that the, I mean, the Federal Reserve was claiming that they had succeeded in attaining uh, 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 consistent uh, economic uh, stability, sustainable uh, stability, uh, which I, I would argue they never had. Um, and then, of course, uh, the stock market was just looking at an ongoing economic boom. The problem is, I, I look at the broad economy, I look at the raw statistics, I have ways of uh, modeling them, and I, I know some pretty good indicators that uh, get beyond some of the hype that you get off of uh, Wall Street, and Wall Street does hype. They always love to sell stocks and keep keep the market rallying, which is fine, and you, you hope that, that continues. But we have a circumstance here where the economy actually had started to turn down and probably uh, was in a recession uh, back in the uh, uh, first quarter, fourth quarter, first quarter 
of 2018-2019. Uh, uh, what happened then was that the numbers were, that reported numbers were distorted by the government government shutdown. Uh, the, the shutdown included uh, the Commerce Department, or could be parts of it, and sections of the Commerce Department that do the economic surveying, such as the Census Bureau. Um, the, uh, the, we've been through some similar distortions in the past, and what I find is that when, when the government doesn't have uh, hard or really good quality statistics at, at hand, they tend to make a positive assumption as opposed to a negative assumption as to where things are going. And I, uh, I've been in this business for a long time and I've known people in different areas there. And th their point very simply was it's politically embarrassing to uh, have to revise a number higher uh, because it would have been better politically to uh, uh, have it artificially high and then have to revise it lower. So generally when they make their guesstimates, they're always, always to the plus side. And uh, you see that in things such as retail sales and uh, you didn't get normal benchmarkings that nor would would usually take the numbers lower as they as they catch up with uh, with reality. But you also have some statistics that are independent of the government, which didn't get affected by that, such as the uh, cash freight index. You look at uh, the basics of the economy; freight is freight is a basic one. Uh, energy is a basic one, and what you'll see is that with the cash freight index, it started to turn down about that time in November of 2018 and that's in terms of negative year over year growth and it's uh, it's been continual and deepening since then uh we're now at levels that uh, uh were seen last in terms of falling off at the onset of the the great recession uh and we've seen uh, with re even with the headline retail sales as as now reported uh, adjusted for inflation, you had a, a contraction in the fourth quarter of uh, 2019 against the third quarter. What's important there is that the fourth quarter of 2019, that's the uh, holiday shopping season. Industrial production is also down in the quarter. Um, you, had, um, you, you have the employment numbers that are uh, generally uh, – uh, well, they're, they're, they're consistently defined now, but – they're not always defined the way I would like to see them, but if you look at the the payroll employment, where they the, the government takes the uh, counts of uh, uh, payrolls reported by uh, employers to the to the state uh, agencies, they found that they had overstated uh, employment uh, uh, payroll employment rather significantly, and had to revise it lower. Um, and this was just reported uh, in the last uh, couple of months uh, by 510,000 jobs uh, from what they thought they had before. Um, and this goes this goes back to uh, 2019 and against again some uh, reporting difficulties. But the difference there is that it knocked 20% of the growth off the payrolls that had been there before. Nonetheless, you look at the um, Headline three and a half percent unemployment rate. It is at a fifty-year low. Uh, my problem with the unemployment rate is that it was redefined at the time that uh, NAFTA was put in place to basically remove the the counting of long-term discouraged workers from 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 the broader unemployment measures. What they did is, uh, aside from the headline number, which is people who are 
uh, currently uh, currently looking for work, unemployed, but they're actively looking for work, which is a three and a half percent. They also have um, what they call, now call a use the U six measure, which includes uh, people who'd like to work but have given up looking for work because there are no jobs to be had, and that's uh, where the, you're three and a half percent with a headline number that's up around seven and a half percent plus or minus right now. But the way they used to measure it is that uh, as long as you uh, wanted wanted a job and uh, had given up looking for work because you just couldn't find a job, they'd count you as a uh, discouraged worker. After NAFTA, they eliminated that to be if uh, as long as you had been discouraged for one year, they'd count you. But after a year, they just dropped you from the counting. And the difference is that uh, instead of being around seven, say seven eight percent. For the, the the broader unemployment measure, it's closer to 20% if you count it the way they used to. And when you combine that with the headline 3.5%, you get an explanation for one thing which is a little unusual in the numbers, and that is that we're seeing high levels of, of uh, labor market stress, uh, the participation rate, uh, the um, uh, employment-to-population ratio. Those numbers are... Um, unusually low, more consistent with a recession than three and a half percent, which would be consistent with a booming economy. And the difference is tied to the redefinitions of of the those uh, unemployment numbers uh, back at the, back in nineteen nineteen ninety four. John, so, let me jump uh, in if I if I could just to jump in on the employment yeah. because for some of our listeners benefit. I think that, you know, when you say that when you calculate the unemployment rate the way it used to be calculated going into this coronavirus pandemic, it was approaching 20%. So um, can you just kind of explain um, where you think we go as far as true unemployment as a result of, you know, current conditions? Well, in current conditions, and the impact you're having from the coronavirus is that it, it's uh, savaged the economy. And when I say you're going to be seeing these numbers, uh, the, the, the bad numbers from the coronavirus, and keep in mind what I'm talking about, about the weaker economy now underlies what we're going into. The coronavirus is uh, overriding this uh, sharply to the downside. Uh, you'll get uh, initial unemployment numbers uh, next week. I see next week, uh, April 3rd. Uh, and that is, uh, you should start to see a jump there, but come uh, come, and those will be the March numbers. When you see the April numbers, uh, there you're going to see a jump, big jump, and uh, you're you're probably going to be up uh, around 25 percent unemployment. Uh, I mean, you're you're talking there things that have not been seen really since the uh, uh, Great Depression or such. Are you suggesting, John, that the headline rate is going to get to 25? Are you suggesting the headline rate might get to 25 percent? Yes, for the month of April, which gets reported not this next week, but a month from now. That's incredible. Yeah, um, that's a lot of people have uh, lost their jobs. Uh, there are also companies that have put people on layoff and are paying they're paying them fully. So it's but looking at the you just had three uh, three and a half million uh, unemployment new unemployment claims in the last week. Some of that's going to be and is going to hit the March number, but due to timing differences, part of that's going to go into April, and and the the issue of people losing their jobs is still is still in place, and I don't think it's going to uh, get resolved in this in this next month. So that when you add my number to that, 
uh, you're looking at something, uh, an unemployment rate, uh, as the average guy would view it as something over 40%. So, John, the, the, this is going to be incredibly devastating to uh, gross domestic product, and uh, we've got about three and a half minutes left in this segment. Sure. Um, where, where do you think GDP ends up this year? Well, the first, keep in mind now, we're, the GDP is reported on a quarterly basis. And so the first quarter of GDP of GDP for this year uh, hasn't been reported yet. We've got two months that it's been reported. March will be the third, and March is where you start to see the hit in the economy. So I think that's going to be down um, on an annualized quarter-to-quarter basis, uh, about 11%, which would be about the equivalent of the, of the worst seen during the Great Recession. But when you get into the, again, this is assuming that the pandemic crisis continues and all those constraints stay in place. When we get into the second quarter of the year, which starts in April, uh, you're going to see a a drop of about 37 percent. And that would be the worst ever seen in uh, modern economic reporting. Uh, They've only reported the quarterly GDP since World War II on an annual basis. They've taken it, uh, they, they have it reported back to the beginnings of the great uh, a Great Depression. If you look at the year-to-year change, the, the, the quarterly rate gets magnified. It's, it's raised to the fourth power. Um, year-to-year, the, where, you, where you have the big hit in uh, the second quarter, uh, that would be down uh, order of magnitude uh, 11%, 12% year-over-year. And that would put it parallel with the uh, first couple of quarters of or excuse me, the, the first couple of years of the of the Great um, Great Depression, and in the uh, period of time, and uh, I think 1946, in as the economy was uh, de- in, uh, cutting back on its industrial um, uh, production and such, uh, post World War II. So, so those are bad numbers, but once the once the uh, virus is taken care of, then you, you you'll see things bounce back pretty quickly. And in fact, it, it, it'll it'll bottom out. It's not it's not going to keep falling off. A lot of the damage has already been done, so this lingers. It, it's going to drop off, and then it's going to be relatively flat. And once it once it is uh, the, the pandemic is uh, relieved, uh, you should rise sharply. Uh, and that's uh, it, it's not economically driven. It's it's an external factor. So re- regular economic stimulus doesn't work here. In terms of stimulating the economy, but you put some uh, funding in from the uh, government, and uh, that helps people's liquidity, which is an important factor. But the constraint on the economy here is not people's ability to spend; it is uh, it, it, it's it's the ability to produce uh, to produce uh, economic goods uh, to actively employ people. Uh, that's that's where your problem lies, and it's not. I mean, what I was looking at as in an unfolding recession is minimal compared to what we're what we're actually seeing here now with the the, the coronavirus impact. Well, our guest today is Mr. John Williams. Uh, he's an economist, and uh, he uh, has the website Shadow Stats. I would encourage you to check it out. I'm a big fan of John's work. Uh, after the break, uh, I'm going to chat with John about the policy response and how that might affect you. So stay with us. We'll be back after these words.
You are listening to RLA Radio. I'm Dennis Tubergen, your host. I have the pleasure of chatting today with Mr. John Williams. John is an economist who hosts the website shadowstats.com. I would encourage you to check out his work and uh, subscribe as well. His insights uh, are valuable. And uh, John, um, you had said something that uh, um, I think on the one hand scares some listeners, but on the other hand, it's it, it might be good news for listeners, and that is that you expect that despite the fact that we're probably looking at an economic hit, and I was making a note here, about 11% in the first quarter is your estimate, 37% in the second quarter. So that's nearly a 50% hit to, to GDP. So we're talking, if my numbers are right, that's $10 trillion. Um, is it really going to be possible for the economy to rebound sharply from a hit like that? Uh, it, it, it is. Keep in mind those those rates are annualized rates. Okay. That's the way the government reports them. Um, so you, you take it to the quarter power or whatever and do it. Let me put it this way. If you look at the year-to-year change, how is it against last year? Gotcha. That first quarter number, where you're right now at, uh, year over year um, about 2.5% in the GDP, that drops to a six-tenths of a percent year-over-year contraction. But in terms of the quarter-to-quarter, it's, it's a sharper decline, and that gets gets annualized. The big quarterly drop will be the uh, uh, second quarter, which will be fully hit by the uh, pa- pandemic. The, the first quarter only was affected really in, in March. So you've got two relatively good months and a, and a bad one. The, uh, the, the th- <clears throat> second quarter, where I'm estimating the relative growth uh, on an annualized quarterly basis, will be down about 37%. Uh, that works out year to year down about 11, 12%, uh, as as deep as any annual decline seen in the Great Depression. And that is the uh, that's about as bad as it gets uh, at such time as the uh, pandemic is brought under control and the constraints on the economic system are removed. The economy should uh, come back pretty quickly. Uh, again, the, the economic depression here is not due to underlying economic weakness. It's all, all tied to this pandemic. And uh, so that the stimulus package you're seeing that, that uh, the Congress has put in place, and the, um, the, the actually we've got two big problems here from um, a, a long-term uh, stability standpoint. One is the economic package being put through, uh, $2 trillion or such, and you look at all the support involved, and, and, and it's more it's more in the 6 to $7 trillion range. Um, that is, uh, provides people with liquidity, but it's not going to stimulate economic activity because, the, again, the constraint on the econ- economy are the constraints placed on it by the, by the virus. Um, you have the Fed that has uh, uh, dropped interest rates to zero, it has opened, it has opened uh, renewed quantitative easing, effectively open-ended. They're just creating whatever money they need to create. Uh, and that's, uh, that's very dangerous because this, when you combine, the, uh, combine both uh, the explosive uh, stimulus package by the federal government in an environment where the budget deficit's already out of control, and you take the Fed which never really recovered from the uh, banking collapse in 2008 when they first took interest rates to zero and launched this massive quantitative easing. They thought they could reverse that. 
And in the process of reversing it, they started us in a, another recession, small, much shallower recession than, than we're seeing now. Um, that, but it, they were they were uh, uh, cutting, um, they were raising uh, rates into the end of uh, uh, 2018, and that uh, actually triggered a <coughs> slowdown in the economy. And because Wall Street reacted, and you could see the economy was slowing at that point. They, they reversed course and they started to cut rates, and but they didn't want to go too low. They, they and uh, you're coming into the end of this last year, they didn't want to cut any further. Uh, but now they've been forced uh, by the, the the crisis and and the crash in the stock market uh, to go to zero in rates and again open-ended uh, money creation, all of which tends to be inflationary and actually opens up the risk of a hyperinflation down the road, um, and that's. Uh, that's the big negative here that can come out of what, what the way the government's handling it. They're doing whatever they can up front to try and keep the system stable, and and you want to keep the system stable. I mean, nobody wants to see this the system uh, the system crash. Again, had the Fed uh, handled the circumstance with the banking system collapse back in 2008 differently, we could be looking at a different. They, they might have had a better uh, circumstance to um, uh, handle things this time around, but um, it is uh, now what's happening now in terms of having to bail out the system is being built upon all the excesses uh, that that they put in place back in 2008 because they haven't been able to reverse that, or or at least significantly. All the the gain they they had there has basically been been wiped out by the uh, coronavirus so far. And they're going to have to go further, as likely will the federal government. So, as all this money is pumped into the system, uh, that generally tends to be uh, inflationary, and in fact, at the magnitude that we're saying things here, hyperinflationary. Uh, my goodness, I can tell you that uh, I've been looking at these numbers for oh, I guess I'm going on 40 years now, 50. Say, I think it's 42, 43 years. Um, in 2004, or I guess it's 2005, when the government published its uh, financial statements, and the Treasury publishes the financial statements of the government every year, um, the uh, unfunded liabilities doubled. This is the longer-term uh, debt that is not otherwise covered. Um, what the what the government did in in that in, in the year 2004 was they effectively doubled the exposure long term exposure to with Medicare and uh, and such and that um, when I saw that I talked to people in uh, I guess the Bush administration and the Fed and that was uh, the Greenspan Fed say look you you guys are dooming the system to a hyperinflation come. Uh, I figure it's about 2018, 2019. This is back in 2004. Oh, the response I got was, "Oh, that's that's too far into the future to worry about." Right. Well, things never got better, and then you had the crisis in 2008. Uh, with ex- a lot of what you're seeing happening now, uh, which the Fed did try to reverse, but never. Uh, now has lost whatever it had reversed and it's going the other way and the government's never gone back on its uh, on its on its deficit um, 
it, the deficit's now uh, worse than the annual GDP. That's the government's deficit on an annual basis. So that you have a you have a circumstance where with what what you're doing here, all of a sudden you're you're taking another magnitude step backwards, and things are things are getting a lot worse. Uh, I think they're going to have to go further because the system's not easily brought under control without the economy uh, uh, stable, and uh, that's that's where you can get into the hyperinflation. I thought it would happen when 2008, I, I thought it happened by 2014. It didn't, uh, obviously, but it is, uh, it's the same factors that, uh, that took, that, that uh, blew things apart in 2018 have never been fixed. The, that we're, we're still reliving the banking crisis there. The Fed never got it fixed. Uh, I, I, I blame the Fed in this, uh, in terms of what happened and, and 2008, and um, in, in terms of the, uh, uh, the the background here as to why the economy was heading into a recession at the end of last year, uh, that was all a, re- all a result of uh, bad Federal Reserve policies. So, so John, I'm, I'm sorry, can I, can I jump in? We've got about four minutes left in this segment. Uh, yeah. you, when you take a look, you, t- you talk about hyperinflation. That is such a scary prospect for people. I think we all think of, you know, Weimar Germany after World War One and, and wheelbarrows full of bank notes to buy a loaf of bread. So yep. l- let me ask you this question. Because the dollar is still used in so many international transactions and so much of outstanding foreign debt is held in dollars, that creates demand for dollars. Uh, on the other hand, all this, all this money creation obviously is inflationary. So those two forces are kind of acting, uh, I, I think, in opposite directions, if that's fair to say. When is the tipping point, in your view, and, and, and what does it look like? Well, I think we may be at that tipping point. Uh, it's 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 difficult to to, to pin it down, but uh, uh, I think we're once once you um, get to the point of saying, uh, you know, there's no limit to what we'll do here, which is effectively what's been said. I mean, they're not going to let the system fail. Once 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 you're unlimited, you're effectively uh, uh, at that uh, at that tipping point, and the um, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm just losing my train of thought here for a minute. Yeah, um, you say you no. Know, like if we're at the tipping point. I, I guess my my thought was if you've got all these this demand for dollars out there yet internationally because there's really no other currency that that is used uh, to the extent that the dollar is used, and now you've got the Fed, you know. Printing money to the extent that you know whatever we have to do, we're going to do. Yeah. I guess the, the the point was at what point does the dollar get discarded by the rest of the world to the extent that it puts us over the over the edge, if you will, and, and now we do go to hyperinflation. Well, it's a, the hyperinflation will be in the United States, and effectively we've already seen some of that, uh, and uh, it's it's demonstrable. In fact, in my most, most recent newsletter, I have a plot of it. I can show you. Uh, let me tell you very briefly how this works. Um, that, the government not only monkeyed with the uh, unemployment numbers back in '94 when um, it became inconvenient to have long-term discouraged workers uh, in an environment where NAFTA had just been introduced. Uh, back in uh, 1980, the government started to change its uh, reporting of, of inflation. To under, they made methodological changes to understate inflation. 
the reason they did that, uh, the way they expressed it, was to uh, uh, reduce the uh, cost of living adjustments that they had to make for Social Security and for uh, uh, for Social Security re- uh, recipients and uh, for uh, government uh, pensioners. Uh, what they did, and just as a quick example, they, they eliminated, they changed the uh, way of uh, estimating housing costs in the CPI, the Consumer Price Index. Back uh, before they changed it, they, they included in that broad measure of um, housing cost or uh, uh, cost of, uh, of of living in a in a house or home, um, including rent, was they uh, they changed the concept of uh, cost of buying a new house to what they called homeowner's equivalent rent. They estimated what uh, a homeowner would uh, rent him, rent his own house to himself for. And then they estimated how much he'd increase the rent on himself each month uh, for running his own house to himself. And it was completely phony numbers. The effect was it knocked 1.4 percentage points off the total CPI in in each year after that. And they made a number of other changes, too, enough so that the uh, where you see uh, uh, the headline inflation now is maybe 1.5%. Uh, it's closer to uh, you know in the, in the seven to eight percent range. If you look at the actual CPI the way it used to be calculated, and I, I, I have an estimate that I published. Well, what I found was that if you put, if you uh, plot the CPI the way I estimated, the way it used to be calculated, the way most people would view inflation, instead of saying, "Gee, I can't make ends meet based on the cost of living adjustments I'm getting with my Social Security." Um, what you, what you find is that over history, over literally centuries, I, I've, I've plotted it back uh, to the uh, days of New Amsterdam, uh, New York when it was New York City when it was uh, uh, owned by the Dutch. And what you'll find is that the the price of gold and the level of inflation pretty much move in tandem uh, up until the founding of the Fed in 1914. Then you start to see a little higher inflation, and and then you have Roosevelt uh, abandoning the uh, uh, the uh, uh, dollar convertibility, or the the uh, excuse me, the the, the use of the uh, uh, the gold uh, domestic gold uh, uh, conversion, but the dollar still was based on gold in the rest of the world. But when Nixon floated uh, floated the dollar and abandoned the uh, convertibility of the dollar to gold, that was uh, that was the end of the backing of uh, gold for the dollar, the formal backing, and all of a sudden you start to see some inflation. Well, by and that was in uh, it was around '72. You get into 1980, you're beginning to see a pickup in inflation. That's when the government moved to change its inflation numbers. And um, if you keep tracking the inflation as though they never changed the inflation numbers, guess what? It stays even with gold over time. Gold measures the actual cost of living. And what you'll see now is that um, you've lost a tremendous amount of the purchasing power in the dollar, which has never been reflected in the headline CPI, but has been caught up in, in the uh, the rise in gold prices. I'll contend that the rise in gold prices is, is a direct measure of the U.S. cost of living, of covering the U.S. cost of living. If you had your assets in gold, you can you can um, uh, way I explained it to someone at a monetary uh, conference. 
this guy was complaining that his, his mother uh, had told him how she used to be able to get a uh, a third third row center seat in a, for a Broadway play for five dollars. That was back in the twenties, and uh, today it's just it's it, it's it's ridiculous. And I said, well, you know, if she had if she had a five dollar gold coin from that she could have bought the seat for in the the twenties the, uh, for that same five dollar. Uh, gold coin, she could get a, the same seat today. She'd be sitting there, wouldn't she? <laughs> John, that, I, that, but that's, I, the, that's that's the that. What I'm saying is, gold protects the the, the purchasing power of your assets, and and what you're getting is a phony CPI out of the government. So that when I'm talking about a hyperinflation, you may not see it right away in the underlying CPI, but you will see it in a surge in gold price. And when you see that surge in the gold price, and it, it starts to go exponential. Uh, I would contend that you're seeing a uh, a real hyperinflation, even well, though it's not necessarily in the headline inflation numbers. Well, John, always a pleasure to chat with you. The clock tells me we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, good bit of advice there at the end. Uh, our guest today has been Mr. John Williams. His website is shadowstats.com. We'll be back after these words. I'm Dennis Tubergen. You're listening to RLA Radio. Glad you're listening in today. And thanks again to Mr. John Williams for joining us on today's program. You know, in the first segment of today's program, I shared with you the fact that using Warren Buffett's favorite stock valuation indicator, stock valuations are now back to the point where the decline started in 2007. That is a bit unsettling. Now, does that mean stocks have to go down 50% from here? The answer is no, but we would caution you to be careful. See, the Fed has launched an incredible response to this decline. There is massive amounts of money creation going on, which I believe will ultimately be bullish for gold. Now, if you've been a long-time listener to this program, you know that for the past several years, I have been suggesting that you get tangible, and by getting tangible, I mean accumulating gold and silver in some of your portfolio. Now, the reason for this is simple. History teaches us that whenever money is printed, eventually bad things happen. We see asset price bubbles, not unlike the bubble that we just experienced in stocks and are still probably experiencing. And eventually we see inflation, as John Williams talked about today. Now, precious metals are a hedge for what against what is, in my view, the eventual inevitable inflation. Now, gold prices have been fluctuating as stocks have been crashing. However, there is something going on in the gold market that hasn't been reported, but it's very real. At the present time, there is a huge disparity between the paper price of gold and the price of physical gold, if you can even find it. Over the past month, demand for physical gold has surged. And physical gold and silver, if you can find it, is commanding an extreme premium. So, what should you be doing moving ahead? Well, educate yourself. The first thing you could do would be attend our free live informational webinar this Tuesday at 11 a.m. You can register by 
going to yourportfoliowatchlive.com. And on the webinar, I'll share with you our long-term gold forecast, long-term stock forecast. I'll also share with you the forecast for U.S. Treasuries and the U.S. dollar. More specifically, I'll give you a strategy that you should consider doing and using right now in your portfolio to measure and monitor where you are. So again, if you would like to attend our free informational webinar, it's at yourportfoliowatchlive.com. That's this Tuesday at 11 a.m. And again, to register, as I said, it's yourportfoliowatchlive.com. We also have resources available at retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. All of the past programs are posted there. You can go back and listen to any of the programs. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter, Portfolio Watch, uh, at that website. And again, the website is retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. That's all the time I have for this week. I'll be back again next week. Stay safe.